Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute, and we appreciate you uh, making it through this uh, inclement weather. Perfect day, maybe, to talk about global warming and climate change. Uh, before we get started with, with today's program, uh, I just wanted to point out a couple quick things. Uh, first of all, the brand new handbook, Cato Handbook for Policymakers, will be coming out next week. We're actually going to have a reception on Tuesday here on Capitol Hill to uh, release the, the new handbook. And uh, then we'll be delivering to offices on uh, Wednesday, February 4th. If you're not familiar with the Cato Handbook, uh, we release it every four years. And uh, it's meant to provide an overview of pretty much every issue that is dealt with here on Capitol Hill, ranging from today's topic, global warming, to social security reform, civil liberties, foreign policy, you name it, it's in the handbook. So uh, look for that to arrive to all congressional offices next week. Also, I should note that the, uh, the full video of this event and all Cato events is available at Cato.org in the uh, archived events section. So if you watch today's presentation and liked it so much you want to watch it again, you can do so at your computer, or you can hear uh, your colleagues back at your office uh, uh, where, they can, where they can watch today's presentation. With that, I'm going to introduce our, our first speaker for today. Uh, Dr. Pat Michaels is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. He's also a research professor of environmental sciences at the University of Virginia. He is past president of the American Association of State Climatologists and was also the program chair for the Committee on Applied Co Climatology of the American Meteorological Society. Uh, Michaels is a contributing author and a reviewer of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And uh, according to Nature magazine, he may be the most popular lecturer in the nation on the subject of global warming. So. For the purposes of today's briefing, I should note that he's also the author of Climate of Extremes, which comes out today, one of the reasons why we're having today's event. Uh, if you're interested in getting a copy, uh, please see me after the, the briefing, and uh, we do have a few copies here on hand. With that, I'll turn things over to Dr. Michaels. Thank you, Brandon. <clears throat> Thank you for the shameless promotion. I appreciate that. And I would like to talk to you about the material that's in my new book. Why do I call it Climate of Extremes? It's because we are in a climate of extremes when it comes to the issue of global warming. Apparently, either you believe the world is about to come to an end from this issue, or you say there is no such thing as global warming. And anybody who is in the middle is disliked by both sides. Uh, what I'd like to show you, however, is in this climate, how things that pass are given as facts and, and, and portrayed as stipulations turn out to be wrong, and we don't even bother to check whether or not they're wrong. And I'd like to start off with uh, quotations from uh, a colleague of mine, I suppose. Uh, this is the vice president, former vice president, on Larry King Live on May 22nd, 2007. An unidentified woman calls on the telephone and asks, Vice President Gore, what issues caused by climate change globally are likely to affect the United States in the next 10 years. And here are some of Gore's answers to this question. First, the direct impacts on the U.S. have already begun. Today, 49% of America is in conditions of drought or near drought. This is a fact that's very easy to check in its historical context. And the, the, the reason I wrote this book is because people do not check the facts anymore on global warming in their historical context or in the context of projections about global warming. The bottom chart is the Northern Hemisphere temperature history from the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. When I finish my talk, I'll point out some problems with this record. The top is the Palmer Drought Severity Index. Uh, it's a common measure of drought across the United States. It's used around the world. And you can see there's no trend whatsoever. What, there is a warming in this record here in the hemisphere of a little bit less than a, half, a degree Celsius over the last 100 years. Do you see any change in the amount of U.S. land covered by drought? The answer is obviously no. It's a fact that nobody bothered to check. So we are in extreme drought because of global warming. That creates a climate of extremes with no fact-checking. Here's a longer record of drought. This is from David Miko, who uh, should have been hired by University of Virginia about 25 years ago, but we turned him down. I do not know why. Uh, <coughs> University of Virginia is a very interesting place, by the way. Uh, there are many Nobel Prize winners who were on the faculty at the University of Virginia, and none that are. Uh, anyway, uh, 
This is the Colorado River stream flow, which is a very good integrated measure of drought in the Pacific Southwest. And what you can see, it goes back to the year 800. You can see where we are now. You can see there's absolutely no trend in this whatsoever. And the current period is, in fact, hardly unusual in the context of the broader historical sweep. Then uh, Gore said, we have fires in California. And Senator Reid chimed in. Uh, one reason we have fires in California is global warming, he told the newspaper The Hill. Fires in California are a very interesting beasts. They're actually caused by excess fuel vegetation in California. They are, they are worse after winters with very heavy rains, usually winters with El Nino, which creates excessive rain in Southern California. And therefore, we should be seeing an increased frequency of winters with large rainfall totals. Everybody knows, look, if you go to Southern California, you know that by May, there's not a cloud in the sky and everything is drying up like crazy. So the difference between a year in which there are some spot fires that aren't bad and where the whole place goes kerblooey is how much vegetation grew up the year before or the year before that. So let's test this hypothesis from Senator Reid and the vice president. All we have to do is look at the rainfall record from Southern California, the climate district uh, from the National Climatic Data Center for coastal Southern California. You know something very interesting about the rainfall distribution, by the way? First of all, most years are below the average. That's right. It's a, very, it's a very skewed distribution in terms of frequency. And then you see the very rainy years up here. Well, it's very clear that there is, in fact, the, the, the rainiest set of years is somewhere back here around 1910 to 1920 or so. This is, by the way, the beginning of the Great Migration into California and the Pacific Southwest. It was sold as a green paradise for much of the year, and it was. And that's why so many people moved out there and now are straining the water supply. Anyway... This, uh, this is another fact, a very easy fact, that could have been checked, but was not. Larry King Live, let's go back to that same show. This all occurred in the course of a minute. <clears throat> Remember, the question was about 10 years. What's going to happen in the next 10 years? You know, even a one-meter increase, a three-foot increase in sea level, could cause millions of climate refugees. 10 years? Let's take a look at the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and take a look at their projections. These are their sea level rise projections for 100 years for various emission scenarios. A1b is known as the median emission scenario, probably the one that we will be on or something like that. And you take the mean bar here and divide by 10, and you find that its mid-range projection for the next 10 years is 1.26 inches of sea level rise, not three feet, not one meter. Why do we not check the facts? Because we live in a climate of extremes where only the extreme rhetoric is permitted in civil discourse. Moderate rhetoric, rhetoric is now shunned. Larry King Live, same answer. We have a very serious threat of losing enough soil moisture in a hotter world that agriculture here in the United States would be greatly affected. This is an easy one to check. Again, this is a 10-year question. Let's take a look at corn yields across the United States. Remember, the global temperatures have gone up about 8 tenths of a degree Celsius over the course of the last 100 years. And here is, the, here is the temperature history from the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, of which I am a member, by the way, proving that all garden parties do need a skunk. Um, however, due to the loss of supply and demand, which we study at the Cato Institute, the skunks tend to fly in the front of the plane. Anyway, <coughs> these are crop yields. The top is corn yield in the United States. You can see it's gone up 500% since warming began. Wheat yields have gone up about 300%. Do you think that's going to stop in the next 10 years? No, it's because people adapt. How do they adapt? We create different varieties that grow in different temperatures. And here's an example, a very close-to-home example, if you, if you don't mind. Uh, this is Augusta County in Virginia, where I used to live. It's in the middle of the Shenandoah Valley, and its annual precipitation is 37.8 inches. Its annual average temperature is 53 degrees. Corn yields average about 100 bushels an acre. Go to southeastern Virginia, Sussex County, Virginia. Total precipitation is about uh, uh, almost 20% higher, 45.2 inches. The annual temperature is 5 degrees warmer, and the crop yield is 100 bushels per acre. It's called adaptation. Now, if you read documents coming out of our dear government, and, and they will be, they're coming out fast and furious as we rush down the road to a cap-and-trade system that will increase energy prices enough that you won't want to use it, uh, you will see more and more of these documents coming out. Uh, one of them had, makes this, this assertion about agriculture and its problems as the planet warms. Ladies and gentlemen, 
we grow soybean. We didn't used to grow a soybean in this country until the mid-1930s. And we imported this crop, and now it is spread throughout the southern part of the Corn Belt all the way into Mississippi. Its temperature range is phenomenally large. If the temperature warmed up, and, oddly enough, you couldn't genetically engineer corn to be more water-use efficient, which is an assumption that is almost certainly wrong, I guarantee you the people at Monsanto and Cargill are working on this as we meet here today, then you would switch to soybeans. And, in fact, there's another whole series of crops, the grain sorghums, which tolerate, they, they, they're grown in the driest parts of the Great Plains. Why? Because they like it hot and dry. And how about sugarcane? Sugarcane is this great source. Actually, you could produce ethanol from sugarcane, uh, and you would might, might, maybe break even if you wanted. So if you got hot enough, the ethanol lobby should be happy. At any rate, these are the adaptations that occur. And I assure you, if we switch to the grain sorghums, a company like Archer Daniels Midland or whoever will get everything out of there that they can put into a television commercial. It's just the way it works. In the climate of extremes, there is no adaptation. Remember that. In the climate of extremes, you die. In the climate of reality, you live. So I want to hawk this book again. <laughs> now, having said that, okay, oh, that's, it's mean old Pat Michaels, and known, known, and known in my University of Virginia today is it's M-O-D-M, mean old Dr. Michaels. And what he's going to do is he's just going to go on one side of this issue and bash the global warming extremists. Well, I hate to tell you something. Extremism, extremism in the pursuit of global warming is no virtue. Uh, and it's nor is it unidirectional. Uh, we hear this one. Global warming stopped in 1997. And what are the implications of that? Well, it turns out that this is true. And the implications are actually very interesting. But why did it stop? Here's the global surface temperature from the IPCC again. The second warming of the 20th century begins in, in 1977. And you can see... Here's 1998. Here's a huge El Nino. Kind of unfair to start your history of temperature in 1998 if you want to say there's been no warming. Look, that side of the extremes is just as guilty as the other side, which will start at the coldest point in the record. Uh, for example, the, 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 the Arctic temperatures that we look at often start at in 1999, the Arctic ice record. Why? Well, that's when satellite records begin, but nobody bothers to tell you that that's the end of the coldest period since the early 1920s in the Arctic. Anyway, you can see here, though, that this trend is flat from about 1979 on. This is through 2007. 2008 got right about down there. And 2009 is going to be even colder because of the La Nina. This is the cold phase of El Nino that is burbling up out in the Pacific Ocean. Anyway, what do we do when we want to ask a question? Well, we could do... Uh, first of all, look at the data. The black lines are the IPCC surface temperatures. The open circles are the satellite temperatures. This is through December 2008. Now, because of the developing La Nina in the Pacific, I can tell you that these satellite temperatures will, will follow that La Nina, and they're probably going to crash on down uh, during the course of 2009, and the surface temperature is probably going to drop too. So this, what, what, we, what we have continues. Uh, obviously, global warming has stopped. Obviously, it's no longer an issue. Obviously, we don't need, no longer need to discuss this. I don't know what the vice president's doing over there in the Senate, but at least 90 people decided to come over here. Thank you very much. Uh, what we do in response to this is let's build a computer model. Okay, so let's go to Michaels and Knappenberger 2000, geophysical research letters. What we did is we took a look at we, – we, we said here is the surface temperature history from – 1979, when the satellite began, to when we published our paper. We didn't use 1998 for an obvious reason, because it was this big El Nino. And, you, you know, unlike some of my colleagues, I don't think we should stop or start records uh, at extreme points when we're making a computer model. Uh, a graduate student would not have his master's thesis signed if he did that. However, apparently, you can testify in front of Congress if you do. And we built this model to explain the variations about this particular trend. Very simple model. And so, El Nino Southern Oscillation. This is the history of that during, uh, from 2007 on back. Remember, our model ends in 1997. Uh, volcanoes, they go off every once in a while, and they put a lot of junk in the atmosphere, and it gets dirty, and the temperature drops. And the sun changes quite a bit. Uh, the sun uh, activity is related to sunspots. As you know, when there are sunspots, when there are black spots on the sun, the sun is colder. What's wrong? No, the sun is warmer. 
and there have hardly been any sunspots for the last several years. And so the sun is, in fact, very, very cold. Now, we're going to make two assumptions, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to use this model like I was a real person. I'm not going to fit the data that exists to today and say, ah, these are the coefficients, and my model works. No. I ran, I, we built this model in 2000. We ran it through 1997. I'm going to use the same model coefficients that came out in 1997. I'm sorry for the rest of you. This bores you. It's Washington, okay? Anyway, <clears throat> and we're going to make two assumptions. The first assumption is going to be that global warming continues for whatever reason. Carbon dioxide, probably. Mm, uh, some internal oscillation in the Earth's climate system. I don't know. We're just going to posit that the warming trend that was established in 1977 actually continues and, and goes out here. Now we're going to build another model where we assume that it stopped in 1977, I mean in, in 1997. And we're going to see which model fits the data better. Well, here's the fit to the surface temperatures. The top one is the assumption that global warming uh, uh, continues, and the bottom one is the assumption that global warming stopped. Which one fits the data better? Obviously the one that says that global warming continues. And we can do the same thing for the satellite temperatures. And you see the fit is very, very obvious. This paper has been rejected. Uh, and I, cannot, I only found one comment. They didn't like the last paragraph for some reason. And instead of being asked to change the paragraph, we got a rejection on it. Whatever it is, it's very obvious. Uh, and it was amusing because you, the reviewer said, my God, look who wrote this paper. Like, you know, like, we're actually supposed to tell the truth in science. We, we don't want the climate of extremes. We want the climate of civility. We want the climate where if you don't say the world's coming to an end, you're not thrown out of your job. We want the climate where if you do say the most extreme things, your facts are checked and challenged and challenged and challenged. That's the way we should be working. This completely incomprehensible graph, by the way, are the implications of what's going on. Just want you to look at, th these are the frequency distributions of warming trends in degrees per year from the various, all the computer models used by the United Nations. We want to look at the bottom 0.025% uh, confidence level. So this is 95% twin-tailed confidence level. And the black line are the observed warming trends in length. This is the 97.5 or 0.025 confidence level. And you can see at year 11, all of a sudden, we have dropped out of the model statistical range. Now, year 12, which is 2009, is probably going to be cold. It's going to drop this black line pretty far underneath the model range. I'm not the kind of person who's going to go around and say the models have failed yet. Because all I need is one more year, the way temperatures are running, and it's going to be unassailable. Uh, so while we go rapidly down the road to policy, please check the temperature and take a look at the disconnect between the model's frequency distribution and now the observed temperatures. Then there's this other little problem in the ocean published by Keneally side et al. I'll just read the bottom line. Our results suggest that global surface temperatures may not increase over the next decade as natural climate variations in the North Atlantic and Tropical Pacific temporarily offset the projected anthropogenic warming. Uh, fact of the matter is that the La Nina that's occurring is a part of that, and we're probably not going to see a net warming trend reappear in that data. If we warmed up at the rate we were warming up prior to 1997, we would have to warm up at that rate through 2021 to establish a significant warming trend from 1997 on. That's how far it has been stalled out. Here's the La Nina that's going on, by the way, right now. Blue means temperatures below the long-term average and orange above. This is big spread of cold water across the Pacific and then up uh, along the Alaska, North American coasts, creating our wonderful winter. And here is the spaghetti diagram of the computer models from the United Nations for the A1B scenario. Each little colored line is an individual model. They have 21 models that they run. The dotted line in the middle is the average of all the models, which, by the way, is the what I call the linear model behavior that people refuse to acknowledge. What it says is it is the consensus of our computer models that once warming begins from anthropogenerated sources, under the mid-range emission scenario, the warming rate is constant. Anytime somebody tells me, anytime I read in the Washington Post, Juliet Alperin, 2005, an ever-increasing warming trend, oh no, that's not, and scientists expect that, oh no, they do not expect that. 
The median scenario gives you a constant warming trend. And if you remember that chart that we showed back in the beginning with the temperatures from, 07, um, from, from 1977 through 07, despite the flatness at the end, that trend looks pretty constant. Now, take a look at the colored spaghetti here. And you will see, whoops, oh, I'm sorry. You will see that, uh, try and find me a 15-year period in which it's, any one of these models is flat. If we go on another few years, that's what we're going to have. You can't. These models are at the end of their rope. We're going to have to try something new. We have to figure out why they didn't do this. But if you don't have a model for the future, what do you have? This. Okay? I feel that something's going to happen. If you want to put forth the largest tax increase in American history, which will be the cap-and-trade programs, try basing it upon I feel when the models don't work. Anyway, <clears throat> just a couple other things. Uh, I'll be going on for about 15 more minutes in case you're really, really bored. Uh, to show you how the, the assumptions that are made are never questioned. Methane is the second most important greenhouse gas. It's responsible for about probably 15% of the greenhouse forcing in increased if you will, pressure towards warming in the lower atmosphere. Uh, and its sources are bovine flatulence, which is certainly not going down. The number of bovines is increasing, proportional to the number of McDonald's and Wendy's. Rice paddy agriculture, people are more people on the planet consuming more rice. Coal mining, contrary to, to, uh, to popular opinion, coal is hardly dead. The Chinese are beginning to run their economy on it. Uh, or leaky pipes. The old theory was that, well, the Soviet Union had a lot of leaky pipes, so when it turned into the economic miracle known as Russia, uh, all of a sudden the pipes stopped leaking. Anyway, uh, so the question is, um, what were the projections for methane, the second most important gas? This is IPCC scenario A1B, the consensus of scientists, okay? Please. Consensus of scientists shows increases in methane, fairly linear, up to the year 2050, and then it begins to decline. Why? I haven't figured out why, but they, had a, they have a decline. Now, as these scenarios were being generated, they were first generated in 1988 for the first UN climate report that came out in the year 1990. This was falling apart. 20 years later, in 2008, that's where this illustration is from. It's from the 2007 UN document. The same thing. You want to take a look at atmospheric methane? Its increase rate began to decline around 1990, uh, and then it's been flat. And in fact, if you look at recent years, there are actual years in which the concentration of methane in the atmosphere has dropped. Why? In a climate of extremes, you're supposed to say you know everything. Three most important words in life probably aren't I love you there. I don't know. And nobody knows why this has happened. Remember that. Oh, that's Cato. Okay. Uh, the whole concept here has to do with the fact that people will die. We talk about this in, in heat, uh, heat waves as the planet gets warmer. This is uh, a, a, a plot, which is totally incomprehensible, of decade-by-decade decade changes in mortality in urban heat waves in the United States and all our big cities. The larger the spike, the more people die. Well, you notice something very interesting here. Uh, let's see, there is no heat-related mortality. This is from CDC data uh, in Tampa. What's the age distribution in Tampa? Does it look like a college crowd in Tampa? No, I don't think so. How about Phoenix? I don't think so. Okay, so what you have are populations that should be very sensitive to heat-related mortality. And the bottom line is, as heat-related mortality becomes more frequent, I mean, as, as heat waves become more frequent, remember the cities are warming up, has nothing to do with global warming, or can have something to it, but the bricks, buildings, and the pavement, they retain heat. Uh, and uh, in Washington, D.C., this is called Urban Heat Island. It's especially, uh, especially virulent because of the waste heat from all the money changing hands. I'm surprised <laughs> that it isn't going up. The heat island with the stimulus package is going to be just phenomenal. And then there's the additional Washington factor of all the bodies of various persuasions bumping into each other in odd combinations. But anyway, having said that, let's take a look at how stupid people are. Well, first of all, there was the great summer heat wave in France in 2003. Oh, my God. It's the middle, in the middle of global warming. Oh, obviously caused by it. This is what's called the lower atmosphere thickness anomaly. It's the measure of integrated temperature in the bottom half of the atmosphere. Weather guys like me use this all the time just to 
do something that nobody else can understand. But, <clears throat> hey, it keeps us paid. You wouldn't pay for a lecture where you understood anything, everything, would you? That's crazy. Anyway, and what you see here is the thickness anomaly. There's this little warm bubble right around France. The rest of the summer was actually fairly cold. And then there was a tremendous amount of mortality. We have a computer models for mortality, too. Okay, We have computer models for everything. Here's the, the predicted mortality, the sort of thin line, and the observed mortality in 2003, uh, daily mortality rate deaths per 100,000 people. And you can see it spiked in the heat wave of 2003. How many of you have ever heard of the big heat wave in France in 2006? No, none of you heard of this. It was as big as the 2003 heat wave. And we have computer models for that one. It should have created this much mortality here, which looks an awful lot like that much mortality there, expected from the 2003 heat wave. Here's the reality. Thousands and thousands and thousands of fewer deaths. Do you think that uh, people's physiology adapted after one heat wave? No. The social infrastructure, it, there, is, there is an incentive a political incentive for people not to die in the streets in heat waves once they do. You do not get reelected if you create all these bodies. And if you create them twice, God knows what might happen to you. So it's adaptation. And then there's the temperature history itself. This is my colleague Ross McKittrick in Canada and I. Uh, the, we have often wondered uh, about the quality of temperature records. You know, we have these cities growing up around their thermometers, and the IPCC gets rid of this urban effect in the oddest, oddest way. It subtracts one hundredth of a degree from the annual temperature for every temperature record on the planet every 10 years. Okay? So the global warming, the urban warming effect in McMurdo in Antarctica is the same as it is in Buenos Aires. We just sort of average it around the planet. This struck us as very odd. Also, let me tell you something about taking the temperature. It's not as easy as you think. You put a box in a standardized shelter, and that shelter has to be a standard color white to reflect away or to not absorb excess amounts of solar radiation. It's why people wear white in very hot climates, because they do not absorb as much solar radiation. People tend to wear dark clothes in very cold climates. And by the way, looking at the audience today, there are an awful lot of dark clothes on uh, the <clears throat> imagine you're a poor country. How how high on your priority list is making sure that the weather station is painted the right white color as it fades? Not very. It's about as high on the priority list as global warming is amongst the American people. The Pew survey that was done a couple of weeks ago listed 20 issues. What's your highest priority? Economy, jobs, terrorism, crime, global warming <clears throat> came in 20 out of 20, which is another casualty of the climate of extremes. People are sick of it. People are sick of being told they're going to die while they're living longer and longer and longer. People are sick of this while their per capita income grows despite <coughs> the current blip. Uh, anyway, so we find that GDP, GDP growth, education, all affect the quality of the climate histories. Uh, these are the significant predictors of the climate trends around the world. Uh, satellite is our, our base trend. That's going to be big. But GDP density, literacy, population growth, income growth, these all have uh, <clears throat> relative statistically significant contributions to the rates of warming that are observed at different places around the planet. And we can correct the temperatures. We can show what the bias is caused by all these economic factors. Uh, where it's green, the temperature corrections are very little. Where it's red, the temperatures that are being reported are much too high. The shelter is getting dirty. The instruments aren't being maintained properly. Gee, any correlation between poverty and bad temperature records? It's pretty obvious from looking at this. So we can correct the temperature records for these economic effects. The black line is the IPCC observed temperatures, and the orange line is the actual corrected temperature history. This never entered into the discussion. It drops the warming to about, uh, from an average of about 0.17 degrees Celsius per decade to about 0.13 degrees Celsius per decade. Remember that this effect can only take place on land. You don't have poverty effects on 
ocean surface temperatures. These are taken by ships. Presumably, there's not a problem with that because it's sort of a random moving sample through 70% of the world's surface. So it only affects 30%. That's what, but it, it appears that about half the warming in that 30% is spurious as a result of this, which, again, drops the warming trend 400 of a degree Celsius. So what? Big deal. I guarantee you if we had found that it increased it by 25% or 50% over the land areas, we would have been paraded down Wall Street, or down, yeah, down Wall Street in a ticker tape parade headed by the Environmental Defense Fund. Uh, no, this never received any publicity. It received one op-ed one op in a Canadian newspaper. Anyway, the cool part of all, all this, and the last really boring graph I'm going to show you, okay, the last really boring graph I'm going to show you, is what happens when you correct the United Nations temperature history for these economic faults. Uh, this is the frequency distribution of various trends in temperature uh, uh, for the different latitude, longitude grid boxes that I showed you in that map that had the red and green lines on it, the red and green boxes on it. This is the original United Nations data. Notice that it has this huge hot tail on the right. There are, there are a large, surprisingly large number of very large warmings in certain places on the planet. The middle record is the satellite temperature history, which can't suffer from these economic effects. It has other problems, but it certainly shows a much less uh, broad distribution, less extremes on the cold side. Certainly the hot tail is gone. And the satellite data is, seems to be a very, very objective predict predictor of near-surface temperature. The bottom is what happened when we corrected the United Nations data for the economic effects. My God, it looks just like the satellite data. The hot tail disappeared. So the part of the cold tail. So not only is there a climate of extremes in the rhetoric on this issue, there's a climate of extremes in the data. This book talks about this. I don't want to bore you with what some of the things that are in the book. I'll let you read the book and be bored. But there's a chapter that shows how the same data gets hotter and hotter and hotter. In other words, it's not that the temperature goes up. It's that the data are massaged in ways that get warmer and warmer and warmer. Or the initial part of the record gets colder and colder, increasing the warming trend in the data. The chance that this is occurring <coughs> randomly, uh, looked at, based upon all the data I looked at, is about 1 in 50. Now, unusual events happen. Okay, I'm not saying that all those corrections aren't real. But I want you to know that they are possible but highly improbable. And the book goes and talks about why there's bias in the scientific literature and why it's necessary. It has to do with the way that we fund things here in our nation's capital. I'm almost done. <clears throat> Two little funny stories. Warming Island, you remember this one. This is the island that appeared off of Greenland uh, suddenly as the ice disappeared. It's a very, very uh, peculiar shape. You see this sort of three-fingered island. And in maps of Greenland, it's off a place called Carlsbad Fjord, this is an old map, of, uh, current map of Greenland that shows where Warming Island would be. It's connected to the mainland. Well, it wasn't really connected to the mainland. Uh, you know, it was warmer in the early 20th century in Greenland than it is now. Uh, maybe somebody ought to ask that question. In the climate of extremes, new island discovered. Here's a map from a book called Arctic Riviera by Ernest Hoffer, published in 1957. This is Carlsbad Fjord. You can see it. And there's your three-fingered island. It was an island in the 1950s. It wasn't just uncovered after millennia of being under the ice. When it was warmer 50 years ago, it was there too. Finally, climate of extremes. <coughs> the red, red, koya, pig, a cork, turek comes bob, bob, bobbing along. And I said, remember, extremism in the pursuit of climate justice is no virtue, and it is also nonpartisan. The myth... Robins in the Arctic, a sign of unusual climate change. The Inuit language for 10,000 years has never had a word for robin. And now are there robins all over their villages. Senator John McCain, 2004. BBC program, no word for robin. Climate change in the Canadian Arctic. Possibly the most powerful news organization on earth. Couldn't go online, as my able assistant Chip Knappenberger did, and find Irving L., 1953, the naming of birds by the Namit Eskimo, Arctic, volume 6, pages 35 to 43. Robin equals Koya Pigaturic. Okay? 
or Stephenson v. 1913, My Life Among the Ephesus. This sounds like Koryak Pigaturk in Mackenzie Eskimo or Shabwak in Alaskan Eskimo. So, in fact, the reality of the story is that the red, red Koryak Pigaturk was bob, bob, bobbing along in the Arctic 50 to 100 years ago. Climate of extremes, you don't find this to be true. Well, buy the book. Thank you very much. Thanks, Pat. Uh, if, you uh, if you'd like a copy of uh, Pat's PowerPoint presentation, it'll be available on our website in the archived events section. You can also see me afterwards and give me your email address, and I'd be happy to send it to you. Uh, next, providing some comments is Marlo Lewis, who is a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, where he writes on global warming and energy policy. Uh, prior to joining CEI, he was the director of external relations at the Reason Foundation. Uh, he has also served as a staff director on the House Government Reform Subcommittee on National Economic Growth, Natural Resources, and Regulatory Affairs. Um, he has also served as a visiting assistant professor of political science at Claremont McKenna College, where he uh, also obtained his B.A., and he also holds a Ph.D. in government from Harvard University. That, Dr. Lewis. Thank you, Brandon. And I want to say what a pleasure it is and an honor to be uh, on any program with Patrick Michaels, who, uh, who I regard as uh, truly a light Unto the, uh, unto the lobbyist uh, here in Washington, D.C. And uh, I've read all his previous books. I'm about a third way through this one, and, and I encourage you all to read the book and even to buy the book. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I'll try to be brief here because I, I know you, you, you all probably have some questions you'd like to ask Dr. Michaels. But uh, there were a few things he said that... Uh, that that uh, got me thinking about this climate of extremes. One of them, the last one about the robin, I won't even try to pronounce the uh, the Inuit version of it. But <clears throat> before I found out from uh, from Pat Michaels and his website that that actually robins have been around in Alaska for a long time, uh, I I did a little research and what I found was that they uh, the the robins range now is very, very broad. They can winter in the southern tip of Mexico, which they do, but they can also summer just about anywhere in Canada and Alaska. And uh, I, I asked myself, what is bad about this? I mean, if it were true that they previously couldn't summer in Alaska, why is it terrible for robins now to have a much wider range in which to find food? Right. Okay, uh, when they haven't when they haven't been driven out of the southern portion of their range, it's not like they still can't winter in southern Mexico because it's too hot there. And uh, I know that Pat is, has has done several s s reviews of studies which claim that uh, global warming is 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 destroying species because there's evidence that species are now found at higher latitudes or higher elevations than they were a couple of decades before. But in case after case, I think as Pat has demonstrated, and, and others have as well, uh, all that's happened here is that the species range has been expanded by global warming. Um, Pat mentioned that the vice president, the former vice president, is testifying today, and he has, he has done more than any other single person in the world, I believe, to create the climate of extremes. Uh, and his, his Academy Award-winning film and best-selling book uh, have really popularized the subject uh, and, and explained it, unfortunately, to many people. And an inconvenient truth presents three doomsday scenarios as the, as, as the core of what you really need to know about global warming. And all of these uh, were very questionable at the time that he presented them, but have become more questionable since. And I'll just talk about one, because I've been, I've been researching recently uh, a portion of this literature which tries to relate global warming to national security, 
Uh, and I think this is very clever on the part of the global warming doomsters because if you can get the U.S. military all bent out of shape about global warming, then you have an exceedingly powerful lobby uh, on your behalf in Washington, D.C., and also someone who can talk to the right-wingers in this town. Um, but this whole discussion was kicked off by a, by a report that was written for the Pentagon back in 2003 by two guys, Schwartz and Randall, called Imagining the Unthinkable. And it's all about how global warming, uh, by, by increasing ice melt in Greenland, um, causes a freshening of the North Atlantic, which shuts down the Atlantic thermohaline circulation, which plunges the Northern Hemisphere into an ice age. And so you get warming causing cooling, and, of course, this is a total disaster for the global economy. Uh, it leads to a scramble over declining resources, including oil, because uh, the sea routes are clogged up by sea ice, and we also can't explore for oil in, uh, in, in, in the waters off of Alaska. It's too cold. And so we have war, and this is why we should all be worry about global warming, because it's a national security threat. And these, these two researchers postulated that the Atlantic thermohaline shutdown could, could, could occur as, as soon as 2010. Well, folks, that's just next year. And uh, about a year later, or two years later, actually, um, a couple of researchers put out a paper which seemed to make all of this look kind of reasonable, Bryden et al., because they claimed to find a 30% reduction in the flow of the Atlantic uh, thermohaline circulation. But then a year later, as more data came in, they announced that their previous paper was a false alarm. And then there were a couple of other papers that also came out in that year that found no change in the Atlantic thermohaline circulation. Uh, one of them found an actual strengthening since 1980. <clears throat> and, and yet, the, uh, the image of, of an ice age coming out of global warming persists and was prominently featured in, in Al Gore's film. And this is the kind of extreme I think Pat is talking about. It, it's, it's, the use, it's, the, it's the transformation of climate change into a bogeyman, you know, not for well for children, but also for their parents. And uh, what really f scares me uh, is is not climate change, but climate change policy. And, and Pat mentioned cap-and-trade programs, which I think potentially are very uh, detrimental to the economy of the United States and the world. But something else that may even be worse might be just around the corner. And here I'm saying that this could happen by 2010. And that's something called the endangerment finding, by the Environmental Protection Agency, and Pat and his, his colleagues, Robert Davis, I have a copy of this here, but you can get it on the U.S. Chamber of Commerce website. You type in uschamber.com slash CO2 for carbon dioxide, and you'll find this comment by Pat Michaels, Robert Davis, and, and Chip Knappenberger taking apart EPA's proposed endangerment finding brick by brick. Now, the reason why this scares the, the wits out of me is that once EPA makes an endangerment finding and says, yes, we believe emissions of carbon dioxide are reasonably anticipated to endanger public health and welfare, and they say really dumb things like, because we're all, more people are going to die from heat waves, as Pat just showed, no, as hot weather is more frequent, people adapt and heat-related mortality goes down, EPA even makes the outrageous claim that somehow air pollution is going to get worse, even though every year they publish another chart showing how all air, pollute, air polluting emissions are going down and concentrations are going down. And this has been the case for the last 30 years. And with all kinds of regulations and laws already on the book, books, most of that pollution-forming emissions, most of those pollution-forming emissions will be gone by 2030. Uh, but nonetheless, they say that there's a 99% confidence that air pollution is going to get significantly worse because of global warming, and we're all going to die. Well, they don't quite say that, but, but people will die. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, what happens if EPA comes out with this endangerment finding and Barack Obama 
and Lisa Jackson, the new EPA administrator, are giving us indications that it will come out shortly, is that EPA will have to start regulating greenhouse gas emissions from automobiles. That will make carbon dioxide a regulated pollutant under the Clean Air Act, and then that will require EPA to start regulating carbon dioxide emissions from what are called major stationary sources, which the Clean Air Act defines as a stationary facility or entity that, can, that has a potential to emit 250 tons of the regulated pollutant a year. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's this building we're in right now. And the U.S. Chamber did a study showing that potentially 1.2 million previously unregulated buildings and facilities would have to go through this regulatory permitting process and invest in expensive and untried technology controls. And basically, this could have a chilling effect on all construction activity in the United States in a time of fiscal and financial crisis. So I think that uh, that is a consequence, unfortunately, or at least the risk that this could happen is a consequence of this extreme presentation of climate science, which Pat has so ably debunked year after year and I just want to once again uh, thank him for, for the great job that he's done in tutoring so many of us who are not scientists. And uh, I, I hope this book becomes a bestseller because it certainly deserves to be. Thank you. Okay, well, we have uh, time for some questions. If you do have a question, please uh, speak up because we don't have a microphone for you. And also keep it short so we can get to as many people as we possibly can. Questions? You can, yeah, if you want, you can use the, the mic there. Sir. Next ice age. <coughs> well, it depends on the way you calculate it, but it would it would occur in a few thousand years. Uh, there are the problem is ice ages. Ice ages don't happen overnight. There's a climate of extreme on ice ages too, by the way, in the rhetoric field that oh, this takes place in a few years. Uh, it's 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 really low on my radar screen. Uh, you could make the argument that CO2 that we're putting in the atmosphere ultimately would prevent such a thing, but <clears throat> I don't think that's going to pass this Congress. Uh, in terms of shameless self-promotion, by the way, uh, I do have a website that was up there. Uh, I have to advertise this, World Climate Report, www.worldclimatereport.com, in which we comment on um, the extremes that come out every few days. Next question, please. Yes. Sure. Can't make that up. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I was, was just checking. So, given that uh, atmospheric concentrations of carbon are in fact rising, um, is that <clears throat> a good thing, bad thing? What do you think the real effects of that? Well, the <clears throat> nature is performing an experiment, uh, or is 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 verifying or forcing us to mo to compromise or to to adjust our computer models as we speak. If you take a look, and I wish I had the computer on here, but I don't. Anyway, if you, uh, if you take a look at the observed temperatures <coughs> versus the models, you, again, I, I showed this one slide. We are at the low end of the range of projections, at the lowest end, and about to fall underneath the projection range made by the models. So it tells me that, yeah, of course carbon dioxide is going to have some effect. I mean, you're warming up high-latitude land areas and, and nights, which is what you would expect, <clears throat> but you want to see what that constant rate is, and it's at the low end of the range. I think uh, when all push comes to shove, <clears throat> we're going to conclude that the sensitivity, I mean the amount of temperature change per unit carbon dioxide was overestimated. Not dramatically, but enough to make a difference. Yes. Eight years, you didn't have uh, much of a problem. There were people 
Um, you are saying, if you could clarify that question, what, what are you saying? Like the sensitivity to carbon dioxide is a nitpicking issue. I would make. I would like to turn the argument around a little bit. Uh, there has been comment on. Uh, the notion that climate change is irreversible and the carbon dioxide remains in a thousand years, et cetera, and uh, so this is a, a one thousand year. We just have to project a thousand years into the future. Uh, I would like to analogize to the Roman Curia, if I were you, if I could. In the year one thousand, the Curia were not st stupid people at all. They they were very smart, and they were picked. And I guarantee you, if they got their heads together and used the brain, which is the analog for the computer, in the year 1000, they would have predicted with high confidence that by the year 2000, 98.5% of the world would be irreversibly Catholic. This is what happens on 1,000-year time frames. It's the assumptions, the, the black swan that you don't know about. <clears throat> Those projections would have been wrong. They would have been made with the same intellectual force and power that they are made by the United States government. So I would argue <clears throat> that the likelihood of this is small. But even if it is correct, the proper thing to do is not to take away your money in a futile attempt to stop warming, which won't happen. That was obviously demonstrated by Solomon yesterday. The other side of that paper was, why do something? What you need to do is you need to make sure the economy is vibrant so that you have investment capital for efficient tech to, for people to put into efficient technologies. Efficient technologies, everything else being equal, will outcompete inefficient ones. How do you get there? By taking away people's money? No. You get there with a vibrant economy. That's where investment capital comes from. So if they're right, fine. You can't do anything about it now except make sure that or try and encourage free economy so capital develops. And unfortunately, the extreme rhetoric believes that you just wave a magic cap and trade wand, and that will happen. It doesn't. Sir? Um, I think uh, you were comparing your model to some UN models at one point, or you just presented them. I wasn't sure when you switched. I was, no, I was comparing reality to, to the UN models. Right. So it seems like the observed data is falling outside of most It's getting close to it, yeah. We just model the variations about the trend with, with solar and ENSO and, and volcanic. It's a very simple thing to do. Okay. And so they don't have, they do not have a 15-year period in them. They have ENSOs in them. But if you look at that spaghetti diagram, uh, which is boring, If you look at that there, the bumps, the, the top, the bumps where, where each model goes up is an El Nino, and uh, the bottom numbers are random volcanoes that are thrown in, but they don't have 15-year flat periods. So there is something fundamentally wrong in this. What is the right model, I guess? No, the right model is going to be one that's going to produce a warming that's at the low end of the range that's in that spaghetti. Well, somebody has. There's, there's, a, there's a low model there. I don't know which the, which the blue model is. But that's the one that I would put my money on. I mean, it's like looking at the racing form, okay? Which, you know, who's doing well in this class of race? Uh, let's, uh, uh, let's bet that horse. I need the, the – you know, he, he, he's been – Good for them. No. 
Okay, sure. Uh, there is a um, organization very much like the CEI that uh, promotes uh, free enterprise, and they have a complaint on their website about how people who are dissenters are, are belittled and ridiculed. So they gave an example of a dissenter who is outstanding, a statistician from George Mason University. Wegman. I don't know his name. Yeah, Wegman. But, but in effect, he corroborated the criticism of the hockey stick. Correct. He said one of the problems with the IPPC is they don't hire really very well qualified statisticians, okay? And uh, very, a very small percentage of their statisticians belong to the American Statistical Society, which produces the stars, okay? And in his uh, research, he consulted with them. He made a point to the fact that they consulted did, yes. Sometime later, they endorsed the IPPC funds. At the University of Colorado, they had a joint meeting with the Mathematical Society. I guess reviewed the data and, in, in effect, endorsed the IPP funds. They may be wrong. I just asked me if you are familiar with the work they've done and had any interaction with them. Well, I'm familiar with Wegman's work on the hockey stick. What's that? I, I, and, and he's. See, the problem in my profession is climatologists deal with a lot of data, and we all think we are really, really good at applied multivariate analysis. Um, maybe we're not as good as we think we are. One more in the back. That'll be it. Our government has poured millions of dollars into climate change. Billions. And uh, it looks like there's millions more for it in the stimulus bill. So I want to, excuse me, just get your thoughts on are we spending too much just right, too little on the Come on, I'm with the Cato Institute. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that is a very, very broad question, which gets me into the nature of science, climate science, which I talk about in my book. It's going to be very hard to dislodge the paradigm uh, of this is the most important environmental issue in history, because by being portrayed as the most important environmental issue in history, it gets $6 billion of taxpayer support for research and uh, global change science. And the stimulus package has $144 million in it for what they call climate data researchers or climate data researchers. I don't know one climate modeler that's unemployed. And what this is doing in the stimulus package is beyond me. That's my answer. Thank you. Well, how about if I – may I ask oh, I'm sorry, Pat one, one quick question? No. Well, I, I mentioned that there are three pillars of doom in, uh, in Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth, and I only touched on one of them, so I was hoping, Pat, you could say something about the other two, one of them being uh, 20 feet of sea level rise in our lifetime, and the other, hypercanes, uh, Katrina, you know, a month. Well, first of all, the 20 feet of sea level rise is largely uh, a product of America's most uh, suppressed scientist, James Hansen from NASA, who does 1,400 interviews a year. Um, he's being suppressed. And the evidence that, that that is based upon a rapid shedding of ice from Greenland. I think the balance of evidence shows that Greenland is quite stable. Uh, under IPCC scenarios of four times carbon dioxide maintained for 1,000 years, if you think we're going to be, that's 1,200 parts per million, we're 385. If you think we're going to be burning that much fossil fuel a thousand years from now, you are as good as Roman Curia were in the year 1000 and about as reliable. Uh, <clears throat> that scenario uh, just doesn't, doesn't work, and it's shown that the ice streams in Greenland uh, are extremely variable. It's hardly irreversible. It was warmer for decades in the early 20th century, integrated warming, than it is now, and the ice shedding just sort of stopped. So it appears quite stable. Hypercanes, the hurricane question, uh, global warming is th thought to increase El Nino frequency, and El Nino contributes a west wind in the upper atmosphere, and west winds in the upper atmosphere destroy hurricanes. The, uh, the literature, there are as many papers saying, oh, they might get slightly worse uh, as saying uh, they would not get as bad and it's interesting that the originators of this, Knudsen and Tulea, I went to graduate school with Tom Knudsen, 
uh, have backed off uh, and said that um, the frequency or the increase in strength would be exceedingly small. Certainly, uh, <clears throat> a 2% increase in hurricane strength will have much less effect than settling another 100 million people on the U.S. coast. Thank you. All right, well, again, uh, we, I do have a few copies of uh, Pat's book, Climate of Extremes, and actually I can provide those uh, free of charge for Hill staffers. So if you're interested in, in obtaining one, just let me know. Uh, thanks so much for coming today, and please finally join me in thanking our, our panel. Thank you.